Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Yuri shares his path from Boulder to operations at Goldman in Salt Lake City back in 2007. Learn how he survived job cuts and got promoted, and why he eventually decided to get an MBA at INSEAD. Hear how he graduated with an MBA unemployed, but then how he was able to get his foot back in the door at Goldman at an unexpected team, only to be promoted again to a front office trading position on the fixed income desk. After four years, we learn why he risked it all to join a small four-person startup trading cryptocurrencies and how that led to his current role as head of trading at the fast-growing startup called Anchorage. Enjoy. All right, Yuri, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, happy to be here, Patrick. So it'd be great uh, if you could give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Absolutely. Um, so I uh, grew up in Denver, Colorado, uh, went to the University of Colorado, uh, served in the Colorado Air Force National Guard. Uh, after that, I uh, went to Goldman Sachs for five years, uh, took a break for an NCAA MBA, uh, went back to Goldman Sachs for another five years, uh, decided to go to crypto afterwards, joined the Quant Hedge Fund, did that for about a year and a half. And uh, for the last uh, three years or so, uh, I've been at a crypto company called Anchorage. Very cool. So let's start all the way back in undergrad. Did you always know, hey, you wanted to be in trading? And, and at Goldman, you were mostly in the, on the trading side, right? So fixed income, what, what were you doing there? Yeah. Uh, first five years, uh, operations supporting the fixed income desk. Uh, the next five years, post-MBA, uh, yeah, money markets portfolio manager slash trader. Uh, but um, to go back to your first question, as far as knowing uh, what I wanted to do in college and undergrad, uh, the answer is actually no. Um, I was a uh, enlisted troop in the Air Force, so I joined right after high school. And I always thought, uh, basically up until my senior year, that I would be, uh, once I got my degree, I would become an officer, a second lieutenant in the Air Force. And that was kind of the plan, to be a career military officer. And so did you have family? Is that why? In, in, the, in the Air Force? or? Um, sort of. So all of the, uh, on my dad's side, all the men, as far as we can track, uh, you know, through our ancestry, uh, have been in the military in one uh, way or another. Uh, but my dad was actually in the Soviet, uh, you know, uh, army. Uh, so he was in Afghanistan back in the seventies, you know, wow. he was fluent in Farsi, Persian, Arabic and everything like that. So I was the first, uh, member of the United States military. Very interesting. So in, in terms of just when things changed, so when did you think, you know, was it your junior year, senior year when you were at Boulder? Was it, you know, when did it change? When did it shift? When was Goldman Sachs suddenly, you know, operations there suddenly a, a 
Environment. Yeah, uh, I would say that it was my senior year. Um, I, I graduated in 2007, and uh, I got a little bit lucky that, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs uh, was opening their Salt Lake City office uh, during that time. You know, right now it's a really big office with, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, but back then there was maybe under 100, and they were looking for someone, um, you know, to join their operations team there. And it was the first year they came to recruit uh, at the University of Colorado. So, you know, I did a few interviews, got a little lucky, you know, I'm sure I answered some questions right. And then, uh, yeah, I was one of the one of the two people chosen to go uh, work there. Don't be so humble. So what, what kind of questions do you, I know it was about 15 years now, how many years ago, 14 years ago or 13 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, oh, I got kind of lucky. I, you know, do you feel like, obviously like on the operations side, it's maybe not as competitive. Do you agree? Or do you feel like they, they were tough questions and like you barely got the job or what was, what was your thought? And like, how big was the class size? Give us an idea of, at least back then, what you what you remember? Yeah, I, I think it was uh, the first time that uh, that that specific office really went outside of the University of Utah and BYU. So I think they did a lot of the um, you know kind of regional schools. I think like UCLA was a big one, Texas, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Colorado. Uh, so I think I was. Um, they took two people from Colorado, and I think my class was around. Uh, 15 to 20 people total just from those kind of satellite schools from around, uh, you know, out, just outside of Utah. And the reason I say I was a little bit of lucky, I'll tell you uh, a little bit of a story uh, of how this went. So, uh, you know, I was a finance major and I uh, interviewed with a bunch of companies, you know, all much lower tier than Goldman. And I basically didn't get any of the jobs. So uh, after about, you know, five or six days, I was kind of like thinking, all right, well, I'm going to go into the military because it's kind of what I wanted to do. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, you know proceed with that career path. Uh, one of my counselors said, "Well, look, uh, the, the Goldman people are coming. Just go to the interview. Uh, you know, well, just you have nothing to lose." So um, I still prepped, of course, and did everything like that. Did all my homework, but I was definitely a lot less uh, nervous, I would say, for it. Um, so I, I go into the interviews. You know, I go through them, obviously, answer all the questions and everything like that, um, and. They, uh, one of the final interviews, they asked me, these are the on-site ones where they flew you out. They asked me, you know, Yuri, have you ever worked uh, at night? Because we just opened the PWM business. We're building it up in the Middle East and we need some, uh, you know, support staff here uh, in Salt Lake to work at night. And I said, well, yes, I've been, a, you know, an Air Force police officer. I was working from 6 p.m. to 6 in the morning at the Air Force Base and then driving back to school in the morning. So uh, they were like, oh, you're hired. You know, when you, you have experience working night shifts, uh, you can work night shifts here for us in Salt Lake City. So that's how uh, that went. Got it. Okay, so you you suddenly, like, you had this job, uh, this operate, almost like a trade management job. So what were you doing, like, through the night, like, providing support? Can you give us an idea of, like, the first few years, what it was like, how it evolved, if at all, and, like, why you were there for five years before kind of uh, making a move? Yeah, so uh, it was your basic, you know, trade management uh, support analyst job. So we supported a lot of the, you know, private wealth advisors, uh, you know, towards the later time zones in Asia and the Middle East. Uh, so, you know, they place trades. We make sure that they properly get processed. Everything gets reconciled. You know, your basic, you know, trade support uh, uh, associated or analyst job, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, did that for about two years, you know. Well, I was pretty decent at it, you know, it wasn't exactly hard. So like, you know, I'm used to working like 14 hour shifts. So, you know, I was never complaining about it. At least, you know, the office is nice and warm in the military. They keep you outside where it's you know, <laughs> kind of freezing. So I was kind of just glad to be inside and, uh, you know, have all the food and coffee that I wanted. Uh, so yeah, it excelled a little bit in the analyst role, you know, then they gave me a kind of a team lead role in the daytime. 
you know, then got promoted to associate, uh, you know, while half of my class pretty much either quit or got fired. Uh, so yeah, just had a pretty good path in operations. Why do you think you could, why do you think you moved up in operations so well? Why did you get that promotion while the other people kind of burned out? Is it just your personality? Is it something you did specifically on the job? Yeah, hard to say. I guess um, I, I never, I, I was good at just doing a lot of repetitive tasks without complaining. Uh, you know, I think the military like completely beats the notion of complaining out of you. So you just kind of, you know, whatever tasks you get handed, you just kind of deal with it. So I already had that mindset for, you know, there's three or four years being in the military. So I didn't really view it, the work as, you know, awful or bad or anything like that. I just try to learn as much as I could. You know, every time one of my teammates was sick or, uh, you know, there was a move to a different team, I always try to learn their, their job. And uh, I guess, you know, my superiors kind of like that the fact that i was just cross-training myself all the time so i think that helped that's cool and did you find wall street oasis back around that time or i know you've been with us for like a 10 plus years so yeah that's right uh, wall street oasis was one of my favorite websites back then because you know when i entered the operations world um you know it's kind of embarrassing to say but i actually had no idea of the difference between banking or trading or you know, venture capital or anything like that, right? Oh, I, and, but I started kind of figuring out on the job that like, all right, well, my PWA is kind of like a client-facing person. All right, so, uh, you know, and Wall Street Waste, I started just reading everything about it and, you know, it was kind of banking heavy. And so I was like, okay, so I'm not even near anywhere near investment banking. I'm in the trading division. Uh, so I started figuring out who was who. And I think, yeah, Wall Street Waste has definitely helped me figure out like what the different parts of finance and all the people that work in those divisions do. So were you thinking like, once you started learning that stuff, like, Hey, I want to be an actual traders out, kind of push you toward going to INSEAD or like eventually, or what was the, was the goal like to get the MBA to say, Hey, uh, I'm going to try to move more front office and make the decisions on the trades versus actually just execution and operations at the, is it as simple as that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's that. And so those two reasons I decided to do the MBA. Uh, so number one was just like you said, you know, um, when I moved back to the daytime uh, away from, you know, supporting the PWM businesses in Asia and Middle East, um, I was supporting the, uh, uh, you know, all the trading desks in the GS asset management uh, divisions. So, you know, I would talk to the traders all the time and, um, you know, I would visit New York sometimes to sit next to them and their jobs just seemed a lot more exciting. And, uh, you know, I started following the markets a lot, reading a lot of macro research. Uh, so I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to, how to do this. And I, of course, I had a really good relationship with a lot of the traders just because, you know, I, I was always, you know, I, I, I always supported them in, in a way that they uh, kind of liked and was doing a good job. So, uh, you know, I always asked them like, well, how do I get your job? And they said, well, you know, take your CFA exams, you know, take an MBA, you know, and we'll, we'll have a spot for you. Uh, you know, just let us know like within a year of graduation. Right. And then the other thing too, you know, after working in ops for five years and, uh, you know, I was getting burnt out a little bit towards the end there because, you know, ops jobs, like I said before, they're repetitive. Um, there's always a mountain of work to do. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't really automated, uh, you know, even involvement. So uh, I just needed a little bit of a break. Uh, and that so was even with moving up. You're still kind of doing the day to day. It was still repetitive, but it's more just title change. Or was it like, did the, did the function change? You're, you're overseeing a group, but you still had to do some of it, too. Yeah, exactly. Like every time somebody's gone, you as a team lead, you're kind of filling in for them. And then every yeah. time there's like a really big issue and a really pissed off trader or portfolio manager somewhere, you're kind of the one that has to, you know, uh, figure out how to solve the problem because your junior analyst usually, you know, you can't do it. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of that type of work that's usually a little bit more stressful. So, so yeah, that's where the burnout really comes from. Is it typical for like a trader, um, like in, let's say the fixed income division, 
to have a good relationship with somebody like you in operations and say, oh yeah, just go get your MBA or CFA and we'll have a seat for you. Is that typical or is it, uh, you know, pretty rare? I don't think it's typical mm -hmm. because I think a, you need to absolutely provide the best support humanly possible. Uh, you need to basically be able to figure out what the trader wants before they even ask you. Um, and then uh, I think you, as an operations analyst, really need to not be nervous about asking them what you want and telling them what, how you feel and do a lot of the research, uh, you know, on your own. You know, for example, like when I see a bunch of trades come in, you know, I, I see, you know, what they are. And sometimes, you know, I would like look into what those companies are doing or what the pricing looks like. Uh, maybe do some self-study and what things mean and then maybe talk to the trader about them. You know, and if you don't sound too stupid, maybe they'll uh, be a little bit open to when you're actually telling them that you're interested in their job. Interesting. So you kind of show, you're saying you kind of looked at the trade flow coming in to be able to, to make interesting conversation and do almost self-study on your own to try and figure out, okay, what's this job all about? How am I going to do it? Um, you know, what, how, what, how are they going about thinking about like whether it's macro, um, macro ideas or yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I'd see a position being built up and then, you know, maybe I see it sell off like later. So maybe I'll ask the guy like, oh, well, you guys have been building this up for last month. Why are you selling it off? Like, does that have anything to do with like event A that I saw on the news, you know, yeah, that yeah. was relevant to this industry? And yeah, the guys are usually pretty open about talking this stuff as long as you're kind of informed. So do you think that it was it like, in particular, like one or two people, like this is now like 2012, you're kind of approaching the MBA application process. Did you approach that conversation kind of before the applications to say, hey, is the MBA worth it? Or what was your thought process kind of like in NCAD? Yeah, exactly like that. I, uh, by the time I started talking with, with the traders about actually like moving up, uh, I definitely was already in my head. I knew that I didn't want to become VP in ops because I knew that that was kind of a, a move that gets you kind of focused inside that division. Gets you, you know, locked in, gets you locked in basically. Gets you locked in there, kind of your your pitch. Yeah, mode. exactly. Like uh, one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever received was, you know, uh, don't become vice president in a decision you don't want to be a managing director. And I think that's very true because, you know, if they look at your resume and you're like, all right, well, you were an associate, you know, for you know three four years, uh, fine, you can still come into a trading division. But if you're vice president, um, you know, and I kind of saw that when I was already on the trading desk interviewing people, you know, if you have a VP, you know, you're not going to hire him for a you know, kind of a junior associate PM, like PM position, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about just, you know, why NCAD and, you know, so you knew you wanted to make the move. You, you kind of had confirmed from some of these front office traders that like, yeah, yeah, they'd have a seat for you if you went and got the MBA. Why not the CFA? What was the decision to do the MBA? Uh, well, I did CFA actually in parallel as well. So by okay. the time I applied to MBA, I already had level one and two knocked out. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just kind of doing those on the side. And, you know, I was also doing all the series exams uh, as well. Just trying to do as much as I could just to kind of show these guys that I was serious yeah. about it. But the reason I chose NCAD is, uh, again, twofold. Uh, it seems like all my decisions have like two main reasons. <laughs> <laughs> one was... Uh, so look, I obviously wanted to go, you know, obviously everyone in Wall Street Oasis says, look, top 10 or don't even go, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was like, okay, I got to get into the top five, top 10 school. So uh, NCAD was like the only school that uh, was one year long. And um, I was never, you know, a, an honor student or a 4 guy or anything like that. So I, I was like, I'm not a good test taker or, or a student in general. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to do the one year program. Uh, you know, it seems to check all the other marks. And then the other reason was, um, you know, I've never, ever stepped foot in Asia. 
And besides, obviously, growing up, you know, from, you know, zero to eight years old uh, in Russia, I've never really been to Europe. So I was like, wow. So I can go to this school uh, that has a campus in France, a campus in Singapore. And I also get to do, the, you know, they have an exchange with the Wharton School. So I get to, like, experience Wharton for a semester. So I was like, this is perfect. So INSEAD was actually the only school I applied to at the time. And luckily, you know, I got in, so I didn't really have to uh, apply anywhere else. So it kind of just fit uh, what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that it's just a one-year program. Does that, do you feel like that's, oh, was a disadvantage on like recruiting or you felt like it was already lined up for you? So it was just more like a check the box type of type of thing. Um, you know, it was a little tough because, you know, there's two classes in NCI. You know, one starts in December and you have the summer for an internship. And one starts in July and you kind of go all the way through uh, for a year without an internship. And I chose the one without the internship uh, because I just didn't think it through very well. Yeah. Uh, so yes, the recruiting was a little tougher. But having said that, um, you know, I still interviewed with, you know, the MBB, you know, consulting firms and, uh, you know, some of the top investment banks for, you know, associate banking roles. I, I know those are still pretty easy to get. Um, you know, just being at the school. But, uh, you know, I always wanted to go into a trading role just because I was kind of used to it and I was in that environment. Did you get offers from like uh, IB associate roles or were you not prepped for like that specific type of interview? Um, I made it, I was one of the last three people out of maybe like 40 that applied for uh, a Goldman Sachs London banking associate role, but I uh, eventually did not end up getting it. Wow, that's, that's as impressive. far as I got. Uh, I got digged on pretty much everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, you got a lot of looks obviously coming from NCAD. So that's, that's good to hear. In, yep. in terms of like, so then, you know, once you're kind of approaching, you have that full year, you're starting the summer and you kind of know you're going to be ending. At what point was Goldman in New York saying, yeah, come here and, you know, you can be a trader in, um, with us. Yeah. Um, were you like approaching, were you approaching the end of school and you didn't have a job lined up? Was it getting nerve wracking? Like, what did you? Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Um, I actually ended up graduating without a job, um, you know, kind of, you know, floated around for a little bit, but I knew I didn't want to take anything that like I wasn't really passionate about. I just started really hitting up those golden traders uh, that I used to work with. And, and eventually, you know, one of them who, you know, I still kind of remain close to, uh, you know, he told me about an opening. Uh, it wasn't a trading opening. It was actually uh, the role was an RFP writer for the GCM fixed income division. So my job was literally to uh, just work in RFPs, which is uh, definitely a full-time job for, we had like, I think a five person team uh, doing that. And it's a, it's a very thankless job and it's very difficult. But the good thing about it is when you write RFPs that have like hundreds of questions for institutional investors about different strategies, you actually get to learn those strategies really well. And you get to learn uh, pretty much just about how the entire division operates because you know, the investment consultants and the institutional investors, they ask just about everything. So after writing these RFPs for a year and a half, I felt like I really got a good feel for how the entire like fixed income division and the entire asset management division work. And so how do you make that internal transfer? How did you eventually get off that RFP team? Yeah, um, the way it works is, uh, so whenever the, any, any trading or PM seat opens up, uh, there's kind of a little bit of a feeding frenzy, right? Yeah. So um, you're not allowed to switch jobs for the first year and a half. So while uh, I was sitting in this RFP role, I started noticing exactly like, how it works, how people start applying, like which people are successful, which people aren't. Um, so, you know, I started trying to follow what all the successful people that were getting those seats when they opened up uh, did. 
you know, so you get to know the portfolio management teams. You obviously have to do a really good job in your role. And then, uh, you know, once the seat opened up after my minimum year and a half in the RFP seat, uh, you know, I went for it. It was with the money markets desk. And, uh, you know, luckily I took good notes, I guess, from what all the people were doing. So I got, I got the job. What were the other people doing? Yeah, I share those notes. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, obviously you need to understand uh, what's going on with the strategy and how the desk makes money. That's the first and foremost. So look, like money market desk, uh, you know, there was a lot of 287 reform uh, that was going on of, you know, how different commercial paper markets work. So, you know, I just kind of dug into some presentations that, you know, the desk was making for their clients, you know, just learned the, you know, kind of the intricate details of that stuff. Even if I didn't fully understand it very well, I was able to refer to it in the interviews and kind of, you know, tell them what I thought about it. And, you know, I think that's a lot more than uh, other people did. I think like one of the things I actually see on WSO uh, that the good advice that people give out is that, you know, everybody seems to overestimate their competition, but the competition is usually like not that great. Like I was actually a little bit surprised, like how some people don't really do a lot of the homework when they're going for one of these seats. So just the fact that I read a bunch of stuff about the 2A7 reform, uh, you know, I think put me, uh, you know, ahead uh, of some of the other candidates going for the seat. Boom. So they're like, okay, yeah, you got it. And the rest was history. You had a good another two and a half years or three years almost. Um, uh, with that team and tell me tell me how that worked out or what was it like day to day and was it kind of what you expected yeah it was um it was definitely the most fast-paced job i've ever had um you know you hours? come in because yeah you're responsible for all the overnight repo and funding the rest of the division uh making sure everybody you know have their trading lines lined up and uh, uh so you know uh you, you learn to talk to 20 counterparties you know from six in the morning to seven you know get all the trades lined up for the overnight roll and, um, you know, the faster you, you're able to do that and the more automated you get, the more responsibility they give you because the senior PMs, you know, they want to hand off as much stuff as humanly possible to you. So, um, you know, the, the better, the faster you learn, the more stuff you get. So, uh, so yeah, so that's kind of how to be successful in the junior PM role is just take everything you can from the senior guys. Were you doing like, what, 60, 80 hours a week, 70 hours? What would you say? Yeah, I would say uh, at the beginning, it was probably 70, 80, you know, you'd come in around six, you know, I'd go home around like nine or 10 p.m. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you, you learn quick, you know, I would say six months in, uh, you know, you maybe shave 10 hours off your day just because you're a little bit more automated. You, you understand things a little bit better. You don't have to research everything quite as in depth as you get a little bit better intuition. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's just, just about right. And then in terms of Hey, can we talk about how it had jumped from like operations pre-MBA to our, the RFP team to, and you don't have to tell me exact, but just like a range to like, uh, to the, once you got the full, uh, the fixed income trader role, was it like, uh, you know, I'd assume Salt Lake City operations role, you're looking at like 50-ish, is that around accurate or for base? Uh, as far yeah, as far as comp, yeah, back then, and again, this was like pre-massive yeah. inflation, you know, because I have a friend right now who just got a, you know, out of Cornell, she just got her first job, and she's already at like, you know, 110. Uh, back then, yeah, I think my first night shift was like 45K with like a 6%, I think, bump because you're working nights. Uh, so you right. get this like 6% bonus. Um, but yeah, that was about right. And then post-MBA, yeah, I think like, 
yeah, 110 or something like that, which I know is like now analyst salary. Yeah, but that's not bad. That's a big jump um, for for the one year MBA. And then from there, any bonus on the, like that team, like that RFP team or anything like that, or it's just more like just salary? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a scraps though. Because, yeah, yeah, it's whatever, um, you know, the trading desks uh, don't take, they kind of give to these product teams. And then, yeah, <laughs> the RFP guy gets a little bit, but uh, uh, you know, I never tried not to complain anyway. <laughs> and then as a junior PM, like that jump to the actual trading role was the base similar, but the bonus just jumped right up or was it both a bump on like the, the base and the bonus? Um, yeah, I think they, they view like the way I think I'm trying, I'm trying to say like, how do I answer this? Like in a PC manner, um, <laughs> we don't have to share exact numbers. I'm just curious. Is it like, yeah, I, cause I know in trading, you can make, you know, everything from like zero all the way up to like double yeah. your salary, so, triple your salary, you know? The, the, the salary, I would say, goes up uh, in line with, um, you know, just your corporate title, I would say. And then the bonus is yes, depending on how the firm does, how the division does, how the team does. And then, as you can imagine, a money market team with 0% rates, you know, I think when I joined, there was a, you know, we went from five bits to 25 bits on like the overnight repo. Uh, you know, you don't really, you know, you have fee waivers because there's not that much return. So, uh, you know, you can imagine that it's very commensurate with uh, with the amount of money your desk makes. Got it. Got it. Okay. So what kind of made you start looking around in, in terms of potentially, you know, going to uh, the hedge fund side? Yeah. Uh, so the way my team was structured is the average tenure of the PMs on the money market team, there were six of us uh, total, uh, was I think like high teens or low 20s. So, you know, the partner of our team was there for about 30 years. There was a couple wow. other guys. Yeah, that was like in their kind of 20 plus years on that same team. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't a team with a lot of turnover. So I was kind of thinking, right, well, I have eight years as a professional here. I'm still like the junior PM. Uh, so uh, probably not going to, you know, be MD on this team anytime soon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started really... Um, you know, getting into just reading about Bitcoin, you know, listening to some of the crypto podcasts out there. And then what clicked for me is not necessarily, you know, the inflation hedge uh, that, you know, Bitcoin is kind of known for, but it was more like, all right, well, in my ops role and as a junior PM, you really see the inefficiencies as far as like how money moves, how settlements happen, you know, all the fails, all the craziness and the amounts of people required to settle a single trade. Um, I was like, well, this is a little crazy because Bitcoin, you know, I can send it to somebody, you know, you don't have custodians or transfer agents or, you know, groups and groups of ops people on both sides of the counterparties. You just kind of press send to an address and then the other person just receives it. So yeah. I was like, well, this tech is definitely something because the entire Wall Street, you know, infrastructure of Swifts and faxes and everything like that, um, that has to change, right? Because, you know, Swifts have been around since the 80s and, uh, basically, the infrastructure of Wall Street is not uh, as shiny as maybe uh, you see the front office stuff on CNBC or when you're dealing with your PM or whatever. Um, it, it's very like a, you know rusty and uh, kind of broken, right? So I was like, all right, I need to learn more about crypto. So yeah, so I just kept listening and learning, and eventually I was like, all right, I need to go do this. And um, you know, I started learning a little, little Python, uh, started you know really getting my quant skills uh, together, and then. You know, I interviewed with Galois and luckily by then I studied enough to pass some very rigorous quant interviews. Uh, and uh, yeah, they chose me to be one of their uh, first five employees when we were launching the fund. Yeah, tell me about that. So that's kind of an exciting 
uh, some people would say super risky move to go from a from a you know bulge bracket bank where you have a steady salary to you said a startup basically a startup fund, right? Yeah, it was definitely scary. Um, so you know, I quit GS. Um, they should they, they told me which address to show up in San Francisco. So uh, you know, I show up and uh, once I get there, I kind of realize this is not this building. It's an apartment complex. Um, you know, so uh, you know. Uh, I meet, uh, you know, the founder of the fund. He meets me downstairs. I, I go up with him, and then, lo and behold, uh, I am definitely going into an apartment. And there's, you know, four other guys sitting there with laptops at a little kitchen table. And I'm like, holy moly, what did I get myself into? <laughs> but then, um, you know, they were like, well, we're we're doing O2C trading. Uh, you know, this is pretty much how it works. Uh, we're, we're doing kind of everything in spreadsheets and uh, in Skype chat rooms. Uh, and and here, here we are, right? Uh, and then the volumes just kind of like came in super fast. Uh, we had, uh, you know, a bunch of clients uh, that were looking to just to execute on all sorts of crypto assets. And, uh, you know, you, I definitely got thrown in at the deep end of the pool. You know, I'm, I'm so used to, you know, Bloomberg chat rooms, you know, dealing with, you know, treasuries and repo, you know, and giant lots, you know, that don't really move in price. Yeah. And here I'm, you know, I'm starting to look at order books and, you know, figuring out the slippage and like trying to, you know, principal quoting uh, for clients. Uh, but you learn really fast because if you don't do it right, you're going to lose money on the hedging, you know, when you're trying to get back to market neutral. Uh, and then, uh, you, yeah, that, that's the best teacher is like just losing money really quick. And then eventually you figure out how to properly price people so that they take your price and you uh, make some money on the, on the side. So that's what I did. Uh, over Interesting. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of, tell me a little bit about that. I think that's fascinating. So you, you go from this large bulge bracket bank, suddenly you're working in an apartment with three or four other people around a kitchen table but you're learning a ton, right? And so tell me about like, did you feel like you were prepared with the, the Python? Is it mostly like you're writing code? What was the day-to-day like? How did it jump? How did it switch? Like you said, I know that I know the assets obviously were very different that you were suddenly dealing with, but what about like the day-to-day and the skills you were using? Yeah, so um, I wasn't writing any code. In fact, I was the only trader at Galois that did all his scripts in Excel and VBA because I was way more familiar with <laughs> I love it. on Python. Um, but, uh, you know, when, like, for example, in crypto, you have to have, you know, engineering, right? So uh, my, the because I learned a little bit of Python, it was easier for me to, like, communicate to the engineer, like, what I want or be able to kind of, like, think about how he thinks about certain logic, right? So I wasn't necessarily writing anything, but I was able to communicate with the other guys basically in the same language. And so how were you, how were you guys even making money? You said it was a startup fund, but it was like, how are you guys even getting any flow? Yeah, so uh, the founder, uh, Kevin, um, he was actually the head uh, trader uh, over at Kraken, which is, you know, now one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, exchanges in the United States and the world, really. Uh, so he had a lot of experience and he had a lot of clients that he brought in, uh, you know, from Kraken uh, to, to work uh, with Galois and OTC desk. So, yeah, we just had quick settlements. Um, we would deal in pretty much, you know, any coin that, uh, you know, we were felt was like properly approved. Uh, so we would deal with like very illiquid stuff. And I think we did a really good job and really good customer service. We were around 24 seven in these chat rooms. So I think uh, the clients really appreciated that. It's white glove service and uh, a wide breadth of assets. Awesome. So like in terms of like how, how would somebody who's not very familiar, obviously traders would understand like in terms of how you're making the money, but like, can you give me an example of a trade that you guys would do for a client? So they'd say, they'd come to you and say, Hey, we want to, I don't know. We want to 
you know, sell short some Solana or we want to go long, you know, whatever. Are, are they saying, give me, give me an example. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you an example. So for example, one of the most profitable things you can do is help a VC get out of a very concentrated position. So, you know, you have these guys, you know, they invest in these coins like nice and early at like, you know, 10 cents or something like that. And then the thing's like 40 bucks and the guy has like 5% of the float and he's like, okay, well, I got to start uh, getting out of this thing, uh, you know, liquidating, but I don't want to move the market. So, you know, you, you work through, you know, you, you look at the volumes, you look at, you know, how much low participation you can feed through the market without really, you know, disturbing the price. Uh, and uh, you're like, all right, well, Mr. VC, um, I will, it'll take me the next month to liquidate this. And this is how fast we're going to do it. And uh, this is, uh, you know, what algos we're going to use and how, which exchanges we're going to use, et cetera. So, um, you know, every time he sends over a clip, you, you kind of price him on it. He says, okay, I accept this price. And then you have to basically hedge it uh, while, you know, not going below the price that the client took from you. And then basically the spread you make is your profit. I assume for, you know, crypto, the spread has to be pretty wide, right? Because the markets can turn on a dime, right? And yeah, back then, uh, spreads were way wider than they are now. I mean, in today's day and age, uh, you know, there are so many sophisticated players, you know, like Jump, J Street, like all those guys are in crypto. So, uh, yeah. you know, you spreads have tightened a lot. But back then, uh, when there wasn't really a lot of, you know, sophisticated OTC, uh, the spreads were nice and wide. Yeah, you can definitely make some good money, especially if you knew how to hedge properly, you know, on the exchanges. And so was the goal, I mean, are they still going? Yeah, um... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Galois right now is, uh, they're still going and they have a very advanced, you know, algorithmic market making platform. Uh, so that's what they're focused on. So the entire Galois team right now is mostly mathematicians, computer scientists and yeah, they do a lot of really interesting stuff that uh, it's cool. Uh, that, yeah, that, that's there. And so, tell me a little bit about kind of why the move and uh, when it happened, and what what your thought process was in terms of jumping to Anchorage. Yeah. Um, so one of my friends from INSEAD, uh, who also went from Morgan Stanley to crypto, uh, was working at Anchorage at the time, and she, uh, you know, she was one of the salespeople here. Uh, you know, and she's like, you know, um, we're, we're looking, we're a custody platform, and we're looking to build a brokerage on top of it. And we're looking for somebody to kind of spearhead the brokerage build out. Well, can you, um, yeah, you know, let's talk a little about what, what is Anchorage and just so, so the listeners know what it is. Yeah, yeah, good, good point, Patrick. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Anchorage, uh, for those uh, listeners who don't may not be familiar, uh, we are the first uh, federally chartered um, OCC uh, federal bank. So um, Anchorage started uh, as a crypto custody platform. Um, our co-founders, uh, Nathan and Diogo, uh, are uh, security engineers, and they uh, uh, used to work at Docker. Uh, they were some of the uh, first employees over at Square, a Jack Dorsey's company. Uh, and they started Anchorage, I want to say, uh, about four years ago, uh, probably a year in stealth, and then a year as a pure custody platform. And then I got brought on to help build a, a, a trading business on top of custody. So custody platform, just uh, is that just holding assets, basically? So, yeah, exactly. And it's a little bit different, you know, for um, everybody who's only, uh, you know, uh, familiar with how the traditional uh, custodians work, like BNY Mellon or State Street. Um, crypto is just a little bit different just because you have bare assets that if somebody steals, you know, your Bitcoin or your Solana tokens or whatever, like you're probably never getting them back, right? Uh, you know, if somebody steals, I guess, like a share of Boeing from you know, State Street, you know, there's a transfer agent says, well, that's not the thieves that actually belongs over here. So they just move it to the computer. And the crew, you know, cryptographic assets don't work like that. They're bare assets. So uh, secure crypto custody is of extreme importance in the crypto space. 
Got it. So there, it was almost like a um, the first kind of would you say large or trusted kind of large platform custodial platform for digital assets. Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't the first. You know, um, like how do, how does it relate? To, like how would how would I see Coinbase versus like an Anchorage? I guess. Yeah, so Anchorage, uh, you you know, uh, you know, I can definitely take this in a very technical uh, direction, but I think like uh, at its base level, uh, most custodians uh, at the time uh, were what we call, I guess, like pirate custody, right? Uh, so you take, you know, a private key, you kind of divide it into three pieces, and you kind of put it in three different areas, which have different security procedures, and you need kind of like the entire uh, key to sign something so that an asset gets transferred. Um, what uh, the Anchorage system is, it, it's um, uh, what we it's what we call uh, you know hardware security modules. Um, they're used in a lot of you know military uh, grade security uh, aspects and, and other uh, use cases. You know, uh, feel free for the listeners you know who are more interested in this. You know, Google hardware security modules. You know, you open a rabbit hole, you can uh, <laughs> get for, for weeks and months, right? But um, basically, it's uh, it's air gapped HSMs. They're not connected to the internet. Uh, and basically, you have military-grade security, but also with a very fast speed uh, of withdrawals. So um, without going too much further into technical details, that's how Anchorage works. It's more of a, it just doesn't have that sharding of uh, private keys. Interesting. Really cool. Okay. So in, in terms of, you know, uh, your NCI classmate convincing you to come over there, what, what convinced you? Was it pay? Was it uh, the trajectory of the firm? What, what was exciting to you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I met Nathan. Uh, and I talked to him about his vision. You know, Nathan's, a, you know, he does a lot of podcasts and panels on YouTube, so you can watch him. He's an incredibly passionate guy, really has a good vision. Uh, I think he has an incredible understanding of, you know, global macro, the regulatory environment, kind of has a good vision of where the world's going and finance, uh, where finance is going. So, you know, I had, I had a dinner with him and, um, you know, I really liked what he had to say. And, um, I think I had a really good experience at Galois kind of building that business, uh, you know, kind of uh, helping Kevin uh, and Mael build it from the, from the beginning. Uh, so I thought I had a little bit of experience in building and Nathan wanted me to come in and help build kind of this brokerage more or less from scratch. So um, I took it a little bit of as a challenge. I was like, all right, well, um, I'm either going to, uh, you know, crash and burn and fail uh, or this is going to be successful and who knows where it can lead. Uh, so luckily, so far, it hasn't failed. Uh, and um, we're obviously, uh, you know, building a lot, we're hiring a lot of people, you know, just for, as an example, uh, I, I was employee, I want to say like 20 something, I think. Wow. And then now we're approaching almost 200. Uh, and again, like, you know, we started the brokerage business with chat rooms and spreadsheets, you know, and now we have fully automated, you know, 24-7 API enabled RFQ platforms. Uh, you know, automated, you know, just about everything. And uh, we're getting ready to scale the business even further. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, so far, it's been an incredibly, you know, uh, rewarding uh, process of building. So do you think uh, you're going to be with Anchorage till IPO time or what's the thought process? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I have absolutely no desire to be anywhere besides Anchorage, beside anywhere besides crypto in the next, uh, for the next like near future. Next uh, decade or so? Quite amazing. Yeah, that's for sure. I think the business is going uh, in the right direction without a doubt. Great, Yuri. So just looking back at the, your whole path or your whole you know, path through your career so far, any final words of wisdom before we call the pod in terms of just looking back and saying, wow, I'm here and I would have never thought it or, or you know, 
anything that the listeners should pay attention to? Yeah. Um, look, uh, no matter how comfortable you are in whatever role you may be in, um, all, like just always be willing to take risks. Um, I felt if I never went you know, to crypto, to a small fund from you know, my very comfortable seat of Goldman, um, life would be a lot different right now um, and not for the better. Um, I think I definitely, that was one of the greatest choices I think I've made in my life, even though it was super scary at the time. And the the, the interesting thing here too is, um, you know, I joined Galois in the crypto industry during the start of a very prolonged bear market back in, um, you know, February of 2018. So for that whole year, um, you know, I was full of a lot of self-doubt, but I just put my head down and built and, you know, um, you know, Kevin, luckily, he's been in Bitcoin since like 2013. So he's been through plenty of bear markets and he kept me sane, uh, you know. But, uh, uh, you know, the one thing I would say to people is always be open to new opportunities and don't just feel comfortable. You know, always push yourself to new limits and uh, test yourself and your skills. That's great. I love that. And it, was it a big pay cut kind of going to the smaller startup when you for initially or did you did it do so huge well? Pay, Patrick, huge pay cut. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but you're but you're happy and excited every day waking up. Oh, uh, you know, if you so even though it was a huge pay cut overall, uh, I would say the last four years in crypto altogether have been a big raise uh, over what I would have made. <laughs> because you personally have been invested in investing in crypto. Well, a little bit of everything, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, when you join uh, any company as, as, as one of the original employees, you know, you get a lot of kind of, you don't get a lot of cash. And that's what I meant by pay cut. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot of equity, which is like worth a lot when you get it. But, you know, when you build the company, you're like, oh, wow, like over the last two years, uh, my equity's kind of gone up like a pretty crazy amount, right? Yeah, uh, and the, the trajectory seems to be, uh, you know, in target for it to go up even more, right? So even though it may be a little bit more cash poor, um, you know, uh, overall your all-in comp uh, can really uh, grow exponentially if you if you're building something that's uh, you know special. Well, it's not capped either, right? It's not, it's not capped like where as Goldman it was like kind of capped in the sense that you could you could go stepwise, but you're not going to see that parabolic jump. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, you know, in GSAM in general, it's like, um, you know, you, you'll, you're, you're kind of going to move a little bit up and down with how the firm and the division does. But overall, like, you know, unless you're, you know, you're, you're making 50x returns, which, you know, isn't really the case right now, just because of just general risk aversion and zero rates. Uh, yeah, probably you, you, you don't have that uh, potential uh, up there. Do you have any strong opinions on just DeFi in general or the timing of how long some of the stuff will take if, if before it kind of, um, you know, uh, disintermediates some of the banks or any of that stuff. Do you feel like this is a uh, years away? Do you feel like it's decades away? What's your thought process on that? Yeah, look, um, the DeFi stuff works. Uh, like for example, like, uh, yarn finance, YFI, uh, for, for you folks out there, um, is uh, something that can literally replace an entire money market PMT a bit. You know, as it's like smart allocates uh, across like, you know, the highest yielding like instruments uh, out there. Right. Uh, so there's definitely the tech is there and the tech is kind of at a point where it's starting to scale. Now, what's going to hold it up is, I think, a lot of the regulatory questions uh, that are in existence. Um, you know, the U.S. regulators, I feel, um, are interested in making this work, you know, because they definitely don't want the United States to fall behind as a technology leader. But they also don't want 
you know, for example, a big insurance company or a big asset manager to get defrauded because, you know, they did, they overlooked something, right? So while it's going slow, like I'll tell you, you know, um, I work a lot with our legal team and our compliance team and, you know, how we can, you know, get this license, that license, can trade this, can trade that, you know, can trade in different jurisdictions. Um, and I do feel that the regulators are definitely open. Um, you know, we engage them, you know, very, um, uh, you know, we engage the regulators a lot. And I feel they're very open to, I guess, uh, you know, moving this industry forward. Although, you know, if you just read Twitter and the media, it may not seem like that. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Yuri, I really appreciate your time. Sorry I was late and uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, very good talking to you. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.